up on my knee, sonny boy. Boy, you're only three, sonny boy. You've no way of knowing, there's no way of showing what you mean to me, sonny boy. Sonny boy, one of the most successful theme songs ever written, may be said to have introduced the sound film to Ireland. It was sung by Al Jolson in The Singing Fool, the film which marked the opening of the Capitol Cinema in Dublin on the 21st of April 1929. The coming of the sound film may have revolutionised the whole business of film exhibition in Ireland, as it did everywhere else. But as far as filmmaking here was concerned, it doesn't seem to have made a great deal of difference. Colm O'Leary, one of our best documentary filmmakers, put it like this. Sound came, what, sort of, I suppose, in, in the, the late 20s, 1928, 1930, approximately. And uh, as far as I recollect, there were no, no films being made in Ireland. There had been some silent films made before that. But at that particular time, there was um, certainly no films being regularly made. So in that sense, it wouldn't have had any effect at all. I do feel, however, that uh, it possibly generated some enthusiasm because the dawn... Uh, which is one of the most extraordinary films, I think, anyway, that was ever made in Ireland, which was made in, I think, 33, 34. It was or made... Was, was, a later, was it a bit later? 30, it was 36, 35, 36, out, yeah. yeah. Um, well, The Dawn was made by a group of people who were amateurs in, uh, down in Killarney, and they uh, learned how to operate a camera. They got a camera, they built lighting equipment and so on, but it was made as a sound film, and it didn't seem to cause them any problem. So job. that uh, the Irish would be as adaptable as anyone else as regards sound? Oh, well, without any doubt. And uh, we know this because um, we know that there are Irish men in, um, working in the film industry in, in all sorts of positions in um, Britain and in America. And uh, the recent Cinema Ireland exhibition, which took place earlier this year in in Dublin, I think, brought this out in a most extraordinary way. I think most people were amazed at how Irishmen had got themselves into all kinds of places, including even Russia. But that's a big question. Yes. But uh, what was happening, of course, in the early 30s was that uh, foreign companies came in, and one of the great films, of course, was Man of Iron. Uh, yes, well, then was that really an Irish film? It was a film about Ireland, but it, I don't think it was an Irish film. It was one of the series of films made by Robert Flaherty, which you yourself, crunches as a film historian, will know better than anyone else. He specialised in going to remote areas, um, even to islands. Uh, I suppose his best-known film is Nanook of the North, made something like 1922, in which he portrayed the life of the Eskimos. But uh, in all his films, he's interested in self-sufficient communities who are living traditional lives, as they had for hundreds possibly thousands of years. And um, after Nan- uh, some years after Nanook of the North, for instance, he went to, to Samoa in the South Seas and made a film called Moana, which I personally think is the most beautiful film he ever made. Shortly after that, he met somebody, I think it was on a transatlantic voyage, who said he should go and see the Aran Islands, which he did, and as a result of that, he decided to, to make a similar type of film about uh, the life on Aran and... Uh, so he, he produced Man of Aaron. But it was, it was a Robert Flaherty film about uh, a group of people living their own lives on you know, self-sufficient ways, as I say, on a, on a small group of islands. 
The man who brought Robert Flaherty to Ireland was Norris Davidson, who was one of the pioneer workers in documentary in the early 30s, and who later became well known as a producer of features, first on radio and then on television. He tells us how he started as a filmmaker. I got um, a Kodak 16mm uh, camera of my own and started doing the usual shots that one takes at home and then embarked on, with Mary Manning, uh, the amateur film that everybody made about suicide, uh, which was called By Accident. And it, it was that that got me into it. I was then bitten. You became a professional afterwards. How did that come about? Well, the 16mm film led to um, an appointment to, uh, to work with John Gerson, which was really being trained. Uh, we were paid very little, but you did learn every single thing from cutting and joining um, right up to, to camera work, scripting and everything else. Well, Grierson, of course, was the man to learn documentary making from. Grierson was because he and he and Flaherty were the, the fathers of, of documentary and made the definition of documentary, which I can never remember exactly because they changed it. Uh, the creative interpretation of reality, I think, is the ex that was the last one. Yes. But you met all the other great British documentary makers as well, Rotha, I, I did, right? We were, we were all working in the, in the same cutting room, in the, in, in the same place. Paul Rotha, uh, not so much. Basil Wright, certainly. Arthur Elton, who died some time ago, he was head of Shell Films. Edgar Anstey, who was head of British Transport Films. Uh, Harry Watt. Cavalcanti. Cavalcanti, of course, yes, and quite a lot of others. Well, they were really the great documentary makers. What sort of a group were they? Um, we worked very well together. One would be doing menial jobs for the other, simply taking stuff and uh, cutting it and joining it, and then maybe next week the other one would be doing the same thing uh, for you. Tremendous uh, enthusiasm and tremendous help uh, to each other and a tremendous pub you know, the place where we used to uh, used to work, where we did a great deal of our talking and planning and gathering and dining in Soho, which was just on the edge of Soho in, in, in Oxford Street. Well, now, tell us about Flaherty, how you met Flaherty. I met Flaherty when I was with Gerson. Gerson knew that I already knew the Aran Islands. Flaherty had a plan to go out there because this mysterious man on the voyage over, who's never been traced told Flaherty there's an island where they actually have to make the fields. Flaherty was thrilled by it, and Gerson said, you take him there and show it to him. So I'd, I showed him a bit of the country, and he very nearly, he wanted to sit down in Akil and, and work there, and it was with great difficulty. I prized him out and got him to Galway and got him out to Ireland. Of course, then he, he wanted, almost immediately, we, we went back to Dublin after about several weeks there when I shot tests, and he found... A very old 16mm Kodak wooden camera which could be clockwork turned or, or hand turned. And uh, he wanted to buy it and go back immediately and start the film. But Gorman British uh, didn't want it to work quite... And blow it up from 16mm. Gorman British didn't want him to go into it quite so rapidly. With his wife as assistant, taking still photographs daily and suggesting the scenario, with the men and women of Ireland reenacting the life of the island... Flaherty set up his own processing laboratory and began shooting the sequences he wanted 
very much as if he had been making a silent film. In fact, this, well, this is the only way that, that a film of that type could have been shot. And I think any company, any producer at that time, if they were going to make a, a film what was really almost a spontaneous documentary, I suppose you could call it, if you were going to film people um, carrying on their natural, their normal activities, their natural lives, uh, even today, in certain circumstances, the easiest way would be to shoot this silently or mute as as we would call it, and then put on the sound afterwards. And in fact, in the case of Man of Aaron, there was very, very little, although it came out as a sound film, it had mainly sound effects of waves. And uh, as far as I remember, there's an interesting thing even of the voices. Voices were used in it, but purely as as effects in the background. You didn't really hear what people were saying. Of course, they spoke, they spoke in Irish, and there was no attempt to translate what they were saying by subtitles. Man of Iron was one of the great documentaries of the early 30s, or indeed of any period since. But the fact that it was made in Ireland did not lead to the establishment of any documentary or other school of filmmakers in this country. Um, Well, there was people like Colonel Victor Haddock in the mid-30s, a man who was interested in films, and he he made, uh, uh, obviously had money of his own, was able to put money into making films, uh, made short films and um, he made a number of shorts and there were another, a number of other people like that who made short films but again as I think I mentioned earlier they, they, were, they were all sort of single efforts they, none of these people started a um, no real industry no, no. came out of it anyhow no, no real continuity um, I might be prejudiced but I would, I, I would feel that the regular production of documentaries started with the courses in film technique run by the Irish Film Society in the early 40s because there were various people such as George Morrison who made Michelle and Saoirse, of course his best known films, as well as I was now working as a documentary producer Uh, we had down there also Paddy Carey who was in running a photographic studio in town he used to come down there and um, at a later stage, uh, Louis Marcus was a member of the Cork branch of the Film Society. But, um, and yourself, this, of course. Well, this is, this is where I started myself, and uh, I, I think I got the inspiration and um, the, my own interest in filmmaking was generated uh, by my experiences in those early years in, in the Film Society. Liam O'Leary, one of the founders of the Irish Film Society, was another of the filmmakers who emerged from it. But he is best known as a film historian and critic and recently as the man who mounted the exhibition Cinema Ireland 1895-1976. to He too would agree that the Irish contribution to the early sound film was slight. Because in actual fact in the sound period, apart from the comparatively recent development of documentary and odd things like The Dawn and uh, Dennis Johnson's film Guess of the Nation and a few scattered things. The contribution is, is small compared to, say, the, the work done during the silent period. Of course, this is understandable because the cost of production, of course, skyrocketed with the coming of, of sound films. But there were a few Irishmen working at films in the early 30s. Yes. While, while the achievement may not have been a major achievement in any way, it, they do reserve, deserve recording. For example, Colonel Haddock of Limerick, who was apparently an eminent explorer and writer, 
produced a, a sound film very early on in, uh, let me see now, it was 1932, uh, called The Voice of Ireland. It wasn't very much more than a travelogue with songs and little... Uh, incidentals, but it at least was a, a genuine attempt to make a, a, a film ab- about Ireland with an Irish theme. Uh, then in '34, Brian Desmond Hurst, who was to make many films in Ireland, but working from an English base with a certain amount of sympathy with his uh, Irish background, made uh, uh, Irish Hearts, and that was in '34. Uh, the following year, he did a version of Riders to the Sea based on the Sing play, which, curiously enough, was, was uh, financed by Gracie Fields. Uh, and it was a it, bit of a oddity, I think, too, that particular one. It was, because it was ra- a rather superficial. Uh, granted that Ireland always presents a good visual image, its scenery is always beautiful to look at, a film requires something more than that. It must have a core to it. And uh, if, if the uh, cake is not good, you know, the, uh, it's small consolation that the icing is excellent. <laughs> uh, and now, in the same year as Riders to the Sea, uh, two other figures came onto the scene, and that was uh, Richard Hayward, uh, the North of Ireland's entertainer and singer and writer, teamed up with an Irish-American called Donovan Pedalty, and they made a film called Luck of the Irish. Uh, again, uh, it was something to see Irish scenes and Irish life on the screen. It didn't go very deep. It was a, uh, it, it was a rather superficial uh, representation, but at least it was getting nearer to the thing uh, uh, that we would like to see, and that is a real, genuine Irish film. As the first decade of the sound film moved on, prospects for the genuine Irish film seemed to improve. 1936, as Liam O'Leary, was an important year. Lots of things were happening that year. Donovan Pedalty made Irish and Proud of It and The Early Bird. John Ford had made The Plough and the, uh, the Stars in Hollywood. And it was the year that Tom Cooper, who produced the first really genuine 100% native production, The Dawn, which in spite of its crudities... And, uh, you know, some of its technical work was really excellent when you think of, of the colossal task that they faced in recording their own sound and doing their own development in Killarney and so on. But, of course, one must remember that Killarney had a tradition, you know, it stems from the old Calum films. Uh, it was in their blood, I suppose, and it was natural that a film like The Dawn should come from a place like Killarney. But uh, anyhow, that 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 that, that uh, was the outstanding film, you know, uh, of native Irish production. Uh, it had a lot of very very good things. Some of the ambush scenes are as well directed as if Griffith had taken a hand in it. And uh, other th- oh yes, and another thing, ourselves alone, uh, which I think was also directed by Brian Desmond Hurst, was made the same year. And uh, it was also the first uh, showing of, at the time, infamous Battleship Potemkin. And in the winter of, of 1936, the Film Society was founded. So there were a whole I lot of things happening, a, happening in one year, you know. And you were very closely connected that, with that yourself, but we won't go into that Yeah, at that's, the a long, that's a long but story. I was asking <laughs> you there about this film studio that was proposed, Liam, when did that yes, happen? yes. In, it was in or around 1936 too. There was a proposal that uh, 
not far from us here in Nutley Lane, uh, a film studio should be established. And there were, there, were, there were all sorts of talk about studios. Even Tom Cooper was talking about a national studio in Dublin. And uh, I, I think everybody was thinking in terms of a national studio. Um, again, uh, many, many, many films were being shot here. Uh, locations were being used. Uh, for example, uh, Shuster's film Wings of the Morning with John McCormick. And I should have mentioned the very early sound film made by um, uh, Frank Barzaghi, Song of My Heart, made in 1930 uh, with John McCormick again. Uh, so Shuster filmed uh, Wings of the Morning, his second John McCormick film in 1937, and uh, let me see what else happened around that time. Yes, the following years, you had all, uh, there was a follow-up to the um, dawn. Uh, there was a film called West of Kerry, or The Island Man, and Uncle Nick, also made by Tom Cooper, which weren't very successful. And Jimmy O'Dee played in a film, Blarney, and Richard Hayward appeared in Devil's Rock. There, there was one other thing with which... Uh, uh, I, I was rather hopeful about uh, my friend Walter Moss from London, a very distinguished cameraman, came over here, and he and I were sort of working, but, of course, in a vacuum. Uh, there was no real official interest. People were rather afraid, I think, of the idea of a national studio or national film production. Uh, the country had other economic problems. Uh, whatever the reason, there was no real... Uh, popular demand because you, you know we weren't cinematically educated the film society started in 36 and even their contribution is comparatively small i think in relation to what needs to be done all these are are drops in the ocean and there just aren't enough drops and there aren't enough big ones yeah. you know as Liam O'Leary has said the dawn in spite of its many shortcomings was the outstanding irish film of the 30s it was really a great communal effort on the part of almost the entire population of Killarney. But the mainspring of inspiration and achievement was, of course, Tom Cooper, the garage proprietor who produced and directed the film. He tells us now how he got involved in such a daunting undertaking. Well, I had heard about the difficulty of making Irish pictures, and uh, particularly about the idea of getting an Irish theme or getting a story. You had to have script writers, you had to have all sorts of people uh, to prepare a script for you, and there was all sorts of difficulties. But I read a book, at least uh, I had read it years before, and I remembered a very good story which could be applied to Ireland just as well as it could be applied to America. It was written by my namesake, James Finnemore Cooper. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he created uh, a story called, was it The Spy? I think it was. He was uh, an undercover man who was uh, running uh, between the two sides, but he was, uh, they just uh, built him up like that. And uh, I decided that I'd try to write a story on the same theme with an Irish uh, background. And uh, that was the origin of the dawn, the story of the dawn. And it was made completely processed, printed, photographed, acted, everything mm -hmm. was done locally. It was 100% Irish from the point of view, except the, uh, the, the raw stock, which uh, I think was mostly 
Kodak or Gevert or Gevert, Gevert, mostly Kodak or Gevert, and everything else was done until it went on the screen was done here in Killarney. In the same year as the dawn, Norris Davidson made the first March of Time film about Ireland, but two years earlier he had returned to the Aran Islands to make a film called Aran Dances. He worked with a hand camera and as there was no power available, he filmed the dancing and other sequences without lights in the open. They were supposed to be out out of doors. They were quite genuinely out of doors. And we post-synced the sound, took the accordion player over to London. He recorded it and we cut it to his um, playing. It worked all right. I'd like to see that film again, but it disappeared. Uh, The company went bankrupt. So and no copies. The, the receiver took survived. the negative, and I don't know whether the receiver the last I heard of him was before the war, and uh, he was refusing to deliver the negative, even then. Was your next job then with the Empire Marketing Board? No, no, the Empire Marketing Board was Grierson. Oh yes, that was that was um, that was the name of Grierson's outfit. After that, it became the um, the GPO and and various other things. But that, that was the his Gerson's group was under the auspices of of the Empire Marketing Board. And you made some films in County Down, I think, or shot some sequences. Uh, I, I made Down. one um, called. Uh, it, it was about. It was supposed to be a documentary about poultry and egg production, but it turned into a, a minor drama. This was Hen uh, Woman. Yes, it wasn't very good, and it was burnt in the great fire in the GPO film unit some years afterwards. What was your next work then? You you did one feature film, I know, with uh, Lennox Robinson. Yes, that was um, General John Regan. Um, Then I came back to this country to start uh, working here. I began by doing a small thing for the GSR, now CIE, then I made some very disastrous ones for um, uh, the tourist board. Why do you say disastrous? Well, the, the tourist board in those days was run on the subscriptions of the hotel keepers, the hotel owners. Therefore, when they set up the film unit, every hotel owner said, when is my hotel going to be shown, regardless of its, of its suitability? They were disastrous. We pass, parted in silence and tears. The contribution of state and semi-state bodies to filmmaking in Ireland through the years has been considerable, but the association of filmmaker and sponsor has not always been a happy one. Colm O'Leary. There are very few, if any, real documentary films made in Ireland because a a documentary film is one which uh, has been said, and I have said before, is a film which presents an individual viewpoint and takes some general problem and deals with it. But quite obviously... A, a government department film is simply a piece of propaganda for that department of putting out a piece of information or it's a film exhort showing you how to use pedestrian crossings properly or about the dangers of, of, of swimming or life-saving or something. Indeed, these are specific things and they must be made as the department wants them to be made. Now, it's not sure it's fair enough the film, if the department is paying for a particular film to put over a particular message and the film has to put over that particular message, whatever it is. But a lot of us who have made these kind of films have found that we've had to put up with a great deal of interference. And uh, I'm sorry to have to say this, but it's true. Uh, Especially in the case of government films, we found that civil servants tend to interfere in all parts of the production. 
And by this I mean they don't just tell the producer what they need in the film, what they want in the film, but they will, they will tell him how to make the film. Now, they wouldn't tell a doctor how to, how to take out an appendix, but they will tell a, a film producer how you should take certain shots and so on. And I've known myself in one or two cases where um, somebody in the government department actually changed scenes in the shooting script or rewrote sections of commentary which they, they didn't care for, didn't approve of. Well, of course, that wasn't their job. That was the job of the scriptwriter, the trained scriptwriter, or of, of the director who'd originally put the script together. And the proper way for them to do it was to, to say, well, look, we don't like the way such and such a section of the film is slanted and cultured. Could you change it? Uh, Paddy Carey, who is no longer working in Ireland now, has some scarifying stories to tell of his dealings with one or two of departments in which it took him up to two years to get them to approve the final script of a film he was he was going to make. And in fact, Paddy Carey, who was our best-known filmmaker, and has, has won about a dozen international awards um, 18 months or so ago. He had to emigrate to England because he wasn't getting enough work to do here. And I, th I, th I think this points up a remark that John Borman, the feature film director, made some time ago, that we in Ireland uh, were visually illiterate. And I think to some, to some extent we all suffer a bit from visual illiteracy in Ireland, so that uh, in, in that sense uh, I don't think that official sponsorship did an awful lot. It certainly didn't do, didn't do very much, if anything at all, to, to produce original documentary work in Ireland. In the field of feature film, the outbreak of war in 1939 put a break on any possible development here. But as soon as hostilities ended, many English companies in particular found the unspoiled Irish countryside a suitable background for some of their films. Lee Moleri. In 1945, I think, started it off. Uh, Olivier made his Henry V that power scored. Uh, the following year, Launder and Gilead made I See a Dark Stranger in the Rocky Valley outside Dublin. Brendan Stafford, who had graduated from the Film Society, was making a film, A Nation Once Again. That was in 46. And in 47, uh, you, you had uh, George Fleischman making Michael David. Uh, and uh, I made a film for Clan of Public at the time called Our Country, which I suppose was the first... Um, documentary film to have social consciousness and uh, I must say that Sean McBride uh, put the cinema very much to the fore in his election campaign and was very consistent in that he actually did use the cinema and in bringing the Cultural Relations Committee uh, attached to the Department of External Affairs into existence he did encourage the production of native films and you know the sponsored uh, documentaries almost all spring from that period and yet your film didn't get much of a show after that Liam did it well, well no our country is the one that I made for Canada public there and I think that was the millstone around my neck when it came to making yes. Portrait of Dublin, well, was which one, was yes. well, Portrait of Dublin was never officially shown. It was made in 1952, and it was just brutally suppressed. And the reason for it, I have no hesitation in saying, was that I made our country for a political party. Um, but again, the pattern continues, and David uh, uh, Brendan Stafford made Stranger at My Door, shot in Dublin and London in 1950, and 
then re really the, 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 there was the spread of documentary films of various kinds sponsored by the uh, National Film Institute and other org and government departments and so on. You and had films like Captain Boycott as well with an Irish theme. Yes, of course, but they were very, very superficial. They, it was always Ireland seen from the outside. There was no sort of inner feeling in them at all. They, 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 they were ex merely exploiting the exotic appeal of an Irish background. Because, you know, uh, we have this qu thing uh, that, that, that to an outsider, we are exotic. You know, we have this exotic thing, and this would be one of our greatest assets, of course, if you got a really genuine native uh, film production. Far from the exotic Ireland of the English and American filmmakers was the historic Ireland of Misha Eire, assembled in 1959. This unique film, like many others, came as a result of patronage. It had the financial backing and encouragement of Gael Lynn and the dedication of one man, George Morrison, to the collection of historical film material was the basis of its success. The beginning of my work in Irish material didn't start until 1952 because, uh, first of all, I was interested in actuality material in general. Then I began to discover about 1949 that no work was being done to preserve and to uh, catalogue our own historical material. And this led me to realise the necessity of some work of this kind. And as nobody else seemed to be interested in it, I began to do the job myself in my own spare time. Uh, I really made this uh, one of my principal endeavours from 1952 onwards. And as you discovered material, you made an index of that material and details of what exactly was available. Exactly. Now, this was rather a special problem because such a catalogue, a comparative catalogue of actuality material from many different collections, I don't think had ever been attempted before. Hence, I had to work out a lot of the rules of procedure for myself. Uh, and in, as you perhaps may realise, the classification of film material is quite different problem from the classification of literary material. Uh, in the case of a book, you see you have the author's name and you can arrange a catalogue alphabetically under the author's name or the book title. But in the case of a film, uh, it's quite a different matter. You may have no title at all. Yes, or who the is the author of a film? George Morrison was very much the author of Mishaera. His handling of the material was resourceful and imaginative, Nowhere more so, perhaps, than where he had no actuality material to work on, as was the case for the execution of the leaders of the 1916 Rising. In this case, I treated the whole of the sequence in a symbolic manner, in between each volley, coming back to the people, the actual actuality shots of people wandering around among the ruins outside the GPO in O'Connell Street and talking to one another an armoured car passing through the streets, and so forth. Uh, and I think this conveys something of the shock and the effect of the executions on the people in Dublin in general, uh, and uh, also conveys very vividly, I think, the sense of the time, of the, the extraordinary 
experience of, of seeing the whole of the center of the city destroyed, which I believe was quite as potent as the executions themselves in arousing feeling no at the time. No doubt it was, and there are some marvelous shots of O'Connor Street and the keys and yes. actual buildings which are recognizable. Yes. And then again, yes. we're very lucky to have certain shots such as the little newspaper boy who holds up his placard That's uh, very good, and right, things yes. of that kind. Assisting George Morrison on Misha Era and on its successor, Saoirse, was a young Cork man who has since become one of our outstanding filmmakers and winner of many international awards. Louis Marcus first became interested in making films as a university student and as a member of the Cork branch of the Irish Film Society. When I finished college at UCC, uh, an opportunity arose to come up to Dublin as an assistant on um, Misha Eyre and Saoirse, and I, of course, leaped at this, and after a couple of months up here, I realised that I wouldn't get the chance to direct films of my own until I had proven I could, which is the vicious circle really that faces every aspiring filmmaker so I returned to Cork and with a few hundred pounds and help from everybody and the loan of equipment I produced a, a short film on on my friend the sculptor Seamus Murphy it was called The Silent Art it wasn't I'm afraid as good a film as it should have been on a subject like Seamus but at least it got cinema distribution throughout Ireland and it proved that I could see a film through from start to finish and then I returned to Dublin in 1960 and I've been working here ever since almost on the making of films. The experience of working on Misha Era must have been very interesting really for a young man like yourself. Well it was a fascinating thing of course because um, I hadn't realised any more than other people the amount of historical material which George Morrison had been able to discover in various archives. Uh, I had uh, um, a very functional role on it. I should emphasise I can take no credit whatsoever for the film. I've just simply assisted, assisted George in a number of tasks. But it was certainly a fascinating introduction to Irish uh, filmmaking. And it was a pioneering work, of course, in its own way. In its own way, it was um, pioneering for Ireland, of course, because it was feature-length uh, documentary. It was also unusual at the time in so far as it was feature-length documentary from actuality material. We've become now terribly familiar with this through the television series about the wars and so forth, but at that period, it it certainly was an unusual film in all respects. You continued the association with Gray Lynn then. What films did you make afterwards? Well, the first two were the sort of twin films about Gaelic games called Pell and Christy Ring. And I made um, Antina Vo, the 1916 commemoration film, uh, a film about Cork and the River League called Rhapsody of a River, with Sean Ariatha's music and I worked freelance for Gaelin for quite a number of years. In recent years I've been branching out with other sponsors and clients but I certainly had um, a long run of perhaps even a dozen documentaries with, with um, uh, um, Gaelin as the prime sponsors. 
Now all these films, I think nearly every film you've made has dealt with some aspect of Irish life or Irish people or their pastimes, something like that. Are these what you think are the really important things, people? Well, I think so. I have no hard and fast um, sort of manifesto on the subject. You're not dogmatic about it? Mm, no, I mean, <laughs> so many films are produced successfully on so many different kinds of subjects. There's no such thing as a subject you can't film. There's only a subject that an individual filmmaker can't film. But I seem to deal, for the most part, with people and the activities of people, and uh, uh, quite a number of these films have been observational films in that they have looked at life as it actually happens without uh, using actors or setting up the action in any way. I think I've somewhat moved out of that style in the last few years. I've been working more on um, films that interpret what happens and that use actors or set up scenes f for their action. Louis Marcus, in his own person, brings the story of Irish filmmaking right up to the present day. But one important element has still to be mentioned, the setting up in 1958 of Ardmore Studios, which was thought by many to herald the beginning of a native film industry. John Houston, appointed chairman of an advisory council by the then Taoiseach, Mr Jack Lynch, spoke in 1969 of the aims of such an industry. Mainly to, to tap the wonderful reservoir of talent that's here. Mm -hmm. um, it's not to, uh, to give Ireland another uh, economic asset. <laughs> well, it will do. I, I think <laughs> Which I hope it will contribute to. But, uh, uh, but rather to, uh, to activate the, um, the writing genius, the acting genius that exists here. And asked what progress his committee had made towards actual film production, Houston said... Gerald Hanley is now writing a, a very fine Irish writer, mm -hmm. is now uh, doing a script uh, on the um, Easter Rebellion. Um, I think we're going to call it Holy Week. <laughs> yes. And um, that will go into production just as soon as the script is compl uh, completed and uh, and all the, the various parts of the thing can be put together. Is it's a big undertaking, a very big one. And this is going to be completely Irish. Will, it, will there be an Irish company oh, yes. name on this? Uh, uh, it will certainly be an Irish film. That was only one of the projected Irish films which did not materialise from Ardmore. However, it has to be remembered that the Ardmore studios could not at any time be regarded as film producers. They merely provided a technical facility. But such films as have emanated from there with an Irish background have generally made little impact either in Ireland or outside it. Colm O'Leary. They made two kinds of films in Ardmore as I see it. First of all, um, um, Irish films which were really international versions of, well, Abbey plays and so on. Um, the second type was just general thrillers or detective films, for instance some of the, I saw a Dr Fu Manchu film on television recently and there was a party of horsemen galloping over towards Peking but they were obviously going down the Rocky Valley through <laughs> into Wicklow or somewhere but it, it, you know it, it, uh, Ardmore was, it was a, a very good studio and very useful for people to come in and make all kinds of films, even science fiction films. But going back to the you mentioned the Irish um, you mentioned the Irish um, films um, these became rather stage Irish I think most people would agree. For example, George Shields' pl uh, play, The New Gossoon, came out as Sally's Irish Rogue. 
uh, and cycling, which was apparently considered necessary to meet them, the world market. And um, they, unfortunately, I think a lot of these films were very stage Irish. One of the, one of the reasons was, of course, there were um, producers, directors coming in from outside. And in any country, you can't, uh, you, you can't really understand. If somebody comes in from outside, they don't understand the, the way of thinking and uh, don't understand the country they're moving into fully. And uh, you run into problems. Um, I must say that thinking back over the history of Ardmore and these films over the last 20 years or so, my feeling is that perhaps it's just as well that no, that the Irish, an Irish film industry has not got started, because uh, in the film industry, the accent is on industry. It is an industry. It's not basically an art form. It's there to make money. And the producers, distributors and other people, they want to reach the widest possible market. And therefore, films must have uh, the most popular general appeal, which means unfortunately appealing to the lowest, con uh, lowest common denominator, if you like. Now, for this reason, I believe that Irish films, to sell well abroad, would have to conform to the Irish image abroad. And unfortunately, that is still one which thinks in terms of shamrocks, shillelaghs, begob and begara. The story of Ardmore Studios to date has been one of occasional optimism, intermittent achievement and frequent disappointment. People have become used to what has been called the annual reopening of Ardmore, and the last reopening at the end of 1975 under the management of Radio Telefish Aaron and with a new name, Irish National Film Studios, renews optimism once more. However, in the context of a truly indigenous film industry, Ardmore should be seen merely as a helpful agent in providing services and facilities. Good Irish films can come only from good Irish filmmakers. The last word to Liam O'Leary. In the field of documentary, yes, a great deal is being done. The uh, work of Patrick Carey and Kieran Hickey and ma many, many other people, Louis Marcus, so on. I go on listing names forever. Colm O'Leary has done a great deal of work. You know, all, all these are, are genuine native films and they look extraordinarily well on the screen when presented all together as they were a few years ago by the Dublin Arts Festival when they were all brought together, about 20 or 30 years of Irish films. They looked extremely well and they had this Irish quality. What would you yourself have liked to have seen done? While I'm, nobody criticises my own country more than I do, nobody is more aware of its potentialities, and this is what makes me so furious when I see the difference, indifference and apathy and ignorance all around me in this particular field. Somehow people do not accept the cinema as something important and yet has been one of the major influences in our lives. One hopes that the new National Film Studios in uh, Ardmore Bray will, at some stage really produce Irish films that we could be proud of. For the moment, I understand their policy is to keep the studios fed with productions from outside. But let us hope that at last a gleam will appear on the horizon and that we will express ourselves through this very great medium of the cinema which has been res respected and uh, developed around the world. Why shouldn't we do it? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.